The man in the iron mask was an actual and historical figure. He was imprisoned in France in 1670 and was held in French prisons for 34 years. He had either a hood over his head or a mask of some kind. His face was obscured and nobody knows who he was for sure, which has given rise to a lot of theories and speculations. And one of the theories of his identity was put forward by Alexander Dumas. That name may ring a bell with some of you if you're a reader. But Alexander Dumas suggested the man in the iron mask in the prison there was Philippe, the twin brother of Louis, King Louis at that time, the King of France. And that Philippe was good, Louis was evil, had his brother in prison because he was a challenger to the throne. So this is dramatized in Dumas's book, Man in the Iron Mask, which was made into a, a movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio. And these are twin brothers, so Leonardo DiCaprio plays both Philippe and Louis. And in the course of the dramatization, then, uh, King, or, uh, Philippe rather, is rescued and released from prison. He challenges Louis for the throne. And it comes to the conclusion where D'Artagnan and the three musketeers must decide which of these two brothers should be on the throne, deserves to be the king. And they have to choose sides and swear allegiance to one or the other. Now, I won't tell you how that turns out. You can read the book or you can watch the movie. But I use that as an introduction today because we're going to tell a tale of two kings. And uh, we're in our series, in the sermon on our sermon series on Esther, rather. And this first chapter here that we're going to look, up, look at sets up two kings. And just like the three musketeers, we kind of have to make a choice, a decision, where our allegiance lies. So I want to progress using three questions today. First of all, and the, the overarching title is, will a real king please stand up? The first question is, who is the real king of resources? Who is the real king of resources? Now let's get these verses before us. Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. King Xerxes reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at fortress, at the fortress of Susa. This, this empire was huge. It actually had four capital cities, one of which is Susa. It's about 150 miles north of the Persian Gulf right around where the Iran-Iraq border is today. In the third year of his reign, he, Xerxes, that is, gave a banquet for all the nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia and media. Now, this is not the media like CNN and Fox News. This is ethnic medians. This is actually known as the media Persian Empire, as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. The celebration lasted 180 days a tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. And when it was all over, the king gave another banquet for all the people from the greatest to the least who were in the fortress of Susa. It lasted for seven days and was held in the courtyard of the palace garden. Now all of that sets up, you know, in our minds, it leaves an impression of how wealthy this king was, how powerful he was ostentatious. And he goes on here to give a jaw-dropping description now as we move on to the courtyard and the gardens. Verse 6, this courtyard was beautifully decorated with white 
cotton curtains and blue hangings, which were fastened with white linen cords and purple ribbons to silver rings embedded in marble pillars. Gold and silver couches stood on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Beautiful, just like your backyard and your garden, right? Beautiful garden here. And all these guests, you know, they're serving wine. He's going to go on to talk here about the goblets of wine. This was also a symbol of wealth and excess. It's these goblets of wine. But there's a lot of drinking going on here. Verses 7 and 8. Drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs. And there was an abundance of royal wine reflecting the king's generosity. No limits were placed on the drinking for the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. So open bar, everybody gets to drink as much as they want, and the implication is that they would want to drink a lot and that they would. The word here in the scripture, the Hebrew word for banquet is associated with drinking, the drinking alcoholic drinks, and rightly so. I mean, these old banquets, they were like frat parties. They were like big keg, ancient keg parties. And part of what's going on here is uh, Xerxes is probably trying to impress his officials and his people that he's rich, he's powerful, he's the right leader to oppose their enemies the Greeks. But in any, in any case, it's an ostentatious display of his resources and his wealth. And it's really a bit of a setup. It's a contrast. And uh, the attentive reader at that time, the original readers, would have noted this contrast. In all of the Old Testament, the rest of the Old Testament, you only have one other description of an architectural structure like this. It goes into this amount of detail. And that's the description of the temple, of God's temple. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, you've read those descriptions in minute detail. And all the gold and the silver and the articles that are inside of that temple. There's a contrast being portrayed here between two kings, between God and, and King Xerxes. There's another description of a garden. We've got Xerxes' courtyard and garden. Remember, God has a garden right in this same area of the world. We have the description of God's garden. And God's capital city is Jerusalem. And the Old Testament prophets have described how God, the king, is one day going to have people from all representatives of nations all over the world come streaming into his kingdom and his capital city for a great feast and a great banquet. Two kings are contrasted here by this description. So the tale of two kings, and just like I said, a decision has to be made. Xerxes represents one perspective or posture toward physical possessions and the importance of finances and wealth. And God represents another perspective. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus says, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. You will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Throughout the scriptures is the testimony of the Holy Spirit that the number one competing idol for God is greed. Paul writes in Colossians 3.5, don't be greedy. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Now, when we hear the Bible talk about rich people, we don't normally think of ourselves, not normally. We think of the uber rich, like the Xerxes of the world. But nevertheless, you know, and especially if you've traveled, and most of us are seasoned enough to know, Compared to the rest of the world's population, we're definitely in the, the top 10%, maybe higher econ, e economic status. So we have to take these kinds 
of warnings to heart. And just a reminder this morning, and I know we know this, but just a reminder, you know, Xerxes would say, this is what life consists of, the accumulation of possessions. It consists of wealth and opulence, and he's showing it all. And Jesus teaches, and the Bible teaches, just the opposite, that life consists of God and the pursuit of the things of God. That's where real wealth and riches are. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 14, life is not measured by how much you own. I want to read you a quote here from Philip Ng. I read this just recently. Philip Ng is worth $12 billion for his control. Far East organization is Singapore's largest private landlord and property developer. In a July 2019 article, Ng said the following, quote, what I've discovered is that all of us are broken. We all have a missing piece. And for me, I discovered that the missing piece was God through Jesus Christ. I was always in search of a better life, a better purpose, a better me, a better everything. I was just looking at all the wrong things. But when I realized there is no better me or better things without Jesus, then it all fell into place. I treasure my faith more than anything. So I just wish for everyone to have that peace and joy. It's the final line of the quote. He says, it sure beats having a lot of money and material things. Interesting. The uber rich would tell us, now once you accumulate all those things, there's still a hole. There's still something missing. And that's because life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. Life consists in God. Now, I know life's expensive. I know you work hard for your money. You work hard for it, honey. I know that we, you know, a godly and righteous thing to do is to work and to earn money and support our families and our dependents. That's the right thing to do. And hopefully have some left over so we can share with those in needs, need and advance the kingdom. But we always have to hold this intention, especially in, in our culture, in our environment. We have to ma make sure we're battling against the drift toward materialism. I want to read you one final quote here. Richard Foster writes, giving giving with glad and generous hearts has a way of rooting out the tough old miser within us. Even the poor need to know that they can give. Just the very act of letting go of money or some other treasure does something within us. It destroys the demon greed. There's a hiker been hiking all day. He was out of water. He was dry and thirsty. Came to an abandoned house. Had one of those old-fashioned uh, handle pumps out in the front yard. And he said, oh, yeah. So he goes over and starts pumping. Nothing comes out. The well is dry. Then he notices a little jug, and it's got a, a note appended to it, a little stubby pencil there. And the note says, this jug has some water in it. Don't drink the water in the jug. Use it to prime the pump. Maybe some of you guys have done that before. You have to prime the pump sometimes. And there was instructions how to pour this water down the pump. But you have to use all the water to do that. And he was tempted to drink the water. That was the sure thing. But he followed the instructions, primed the pump, started pumping. Gallons of water are now gushing out. He has all the water that he needs. So he drank, filled up the little jar, and he scratched an appendage to the note and said, take my word for it. It works. You have to give it all away to get some back. Who is the real king of resources? That's God. All right, here's the second question. Who is the real king of love? Who's the real king of love? So we'll, let's continue 
with the narrator picking up in verse 10. Now, when King Xerxes was high in spirits because of the wine, he told the seven eunuchs who attended him to bring Queen Vashti to him. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. But when they conveyed the king's orders to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. And this made the king furious, and he burned with anger. All right, so once the king gets all liquored up, not only does, does he want to display all of his wealth and his possessions, he wants to put his wife on display. And he sends for her, his trophy wife and bring her into the presence of the rest of the lecherous men in this room so that they can ogle her and objectify her. And Vashti is not having it. Jeff Cohen writes, Queen Vashti must have been a rare woman to have retained her sense of dignity and morality to the extent that she was prepared to endanger her life by refusing her husband's bidding to show off her body to the assembled throng. Vashti is not a Kardashian. She's not going to get a lot of followers on TikTok or Instagram. And she's not going to show off her body. So Xerxes, what he decides to do, instead of handling this as a private family matter, which it is, he calls in his royal advisors to give him advice. And they're willing to oblige. Now just, I'll just give you a sample of their advice in verse 17. They said to Xerxes, Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Before this day is out, the wives of all the king's nobles throughout Persia and Media will hear what the queen did and will start treating their husbands the same way. And so their advice was to tell Xerxes to banish Queen Vashti, get rid of her, she can never come into his presence again, she's dethroned, and to hold a beauty contest so that they can select a new queen, queen of Persia. And they continued. They said, now when this decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive proper respect from their wives. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Get the respect that they deserve. Now there's, um, and that's what he did. I mean, he, he took that advice. There's some ironies in this advice and in this course of action. One is, basically, Vashti kind of got what she wanted. This is what she was already doing. She refused to come into the, the king's presence, and her punishment was, you don't come into the king's presence. Secondly, it's kind of ironic. Here are all these Citizens of the kingdom are coming to the party, and he can't get his own wife to come to the party. Thirdly, King Xerxes cannot control his wife with a royal decree. And so their solution is to try to control all the wives in the kingdom with a royal decree. And here's another irony. These advisors say, when everybody finds out, all these women type find out in the kingdom what Vashti did, they're going to despise their husbands. So what do they do? They publish a decree that tells everybody what Vashti did. But for some reason, the king thought this was a good idea, and this is what he did. All right, this rarely works out, does it? Where men try to lay down the law and demand things, and, not, and that's a specific case. I, sh I, I should generalize this. The further we get away from God's example and God's instructions when it comes to interpersonal relationships, including marriage, 
the more of a mess that we make out of things. Now, we men, we all know this verse in the Bible, Ephesians 5.22. Wives, <laughs> submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. Right? Great verse, guys. Ephesians 5.22. But I'm looking around, I see a lot of guys and gals who've been married quite a while. So we may, maybe we've learned this by now. That it's not always a good idea to go around Ephesians 5.22-ing your wife. You must obey me. Look what God said. Look what Paul said. Look what the Bible says. There's one guy who read Ephesians 5.22 and he came into his wife and he said, all right, now I'm the man of this house and I'm going to lay down the law. I wear the pants in this family. What I say goes. He said, I want a sumptuous dinner on the table for me when I come home at 5 o'clock. And tonight, you're going to prepare me a wonderful dessert. And then you're going to draw me a bath. You're going to wash my back. You're going to give me a massage. And tomorrow morning, guess who's going to get me dressed and do my hair? And his wife said, well, my first guest would be the funeral director. <laughs> it rarely works out. Love like forgiveness cannot be demanded. It can only be given. And we know. Same Paul who wrote Ephesians 5.22 goes on to write Ephesians 5.25 in the following verses. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her in the same way. Husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. And the wife must respect her husband. Now that dynamic right there, does that sound like the dynamic that characterized Xerxes and Vashti and their relationship? Hardly so. Xerxes probably would have received a lot more respect from Vashti if he was giving up his life for her, if he was sacrificing for her, if he was trying to make her the best that she could be. Then respect just sort of naturally flows. And we understand this. Likewise, wives won't have as much trouble respecting husbands who lead out in love and care and sacrifice and treat them the way Christ treats the church. Well, it's just, it's just part of the biblical teaching on interpersonal relationships. God understands, and he is the real king of love, the real king of love. All right, so that's the second question. So the first one is king of resources. That's God. Secondly, king of love. That's God. And thirdly, the real king of the world. Who is the real king of the world? And on into chapter 2 and verse 1. But after Xerxes' anger had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. And this word remember, it's not just, it's not just recalling events that had happened. There is a connotation of regret in that word. The Living Bible renders this verse later when King Xerxes' anger had cooled. He was having second thoughts. Second thoughts about what Vashti had done and what he had ordered against her. Well, sure. I mean, in this account, wouldn't you agree that these Persian elites, these advisors and the king in particular, they come off looking like buffoons. I mean, they are, they're drinking too much and thinking too little. You know, and the Jews would be looking at a person with this kind of power and prestige and riches, and he's got the Persian bureaucracy at his fingertips. He has the power of life and death over people. They might be tempted, tempted to think, this is the man in control, Xerxes. But once you read what's going on here in this first chapter, you realize Xerxes was not nearly as, control, as in control as he might like to think. God is moving in these circumstances. God is moving even here 
and the intricacies of the politics of the Persian royal court to bring about his will, his goals, which includes the elevation of a young Jewish girl named Esther to queen as she is going to at some point save the Jewish people in this area. Psalm 47, 8, the psalmist writes, God rules over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The early Christians, they needed that reminder. The early Christians weren't rich and they were not influential. By and large, they were poor. Many of them were slaves. Here they lived in the shadow of the Roman Empire. It might be tempting for them to look around and wonder who's, who's really in charge and who has the power. And Paul writes to the Philippians, for instance, Philippi was a Roman colony. They're living in the shadow of Rome. He writes in Philippians 3.20, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we're eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. Their Roman citizenship took a backseat to their citizenship in the kingdom of God. <clears throat> we sometimes need that reminder today. Gotta say, right? We look around. You look around today and <clears throat> the political scene and it looks like might makes right. There's a lot of bad law that comes down the pike. Uh, you look at Wall Street and you got multi-billion dollar tycoons, these multi-international companies. They seem to be pulling the strings and calling the shots a lot of times. So wealth makes right. There's a lot of injustice and, and where people are not held accountable, but scandals are swept under the rug. And it would be easy to fall back into kind of a deist mentality where, yeah, God created the world and kind of set it spinning. And then he, he's stood back ever since. He's not really involved. That would be a mistake. And I say, we need the same kind of reminder today that God rules over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Now, there is a painting in a museum in Amsterdam by Rembrandt. It's called The Night Watch. The Night Watch. It's at the end of a long corridor. It's very beautiful. Many, many people come to view this painting. It's huge to begin with. It's 13 feet by 16 feet. So you can just imagine if you're, you're there in that museum and you're, maybe you're standing behind two art lovers and one's kind of an older master teacher and then he's got his student here. And they've been gazing at the night watch, this painting, and after a while, the master says to his student, see if you can find Rembrandt in the painting. So the student looks down to the corner for Rembrandt's signature, but it's not on this painting. Then he begins to study the faces, because sometimes, you may know this, Rembrandt would paint his own face into some of the char a character in his painting. But after studying the faces for a while, he can't find Rembrandt's face there. And finally, a little bit of frustration, he says, you know, I don't, I don't see Rembrandt anywhere. And the master paused, and then he replies, well, you know, you look for the signature, I look at the style. You look for the face, I see the brushstrokes. You don't see Rembrandt anywhere. I see Rembrandt everywhere. Not only when we look at the, the political environment or the economic environment or Wall Street, sometimes we look at our own lives and what's going on. Isn't it the case that we struggle to see the face of God? We struggle to see the hand of God. The work of God does not seem obvious. And we, we may ask ourselves the question, I don't see God where is God? I don't see God anywhere. This morning, let's hear 
the voice of the ultimate author of this chapter in Esther. Come and whisper into our ears. You may not see God visibly anywhere, but I want to remind you, in your life, God is working everywhere. God is working everywhere. King of the world. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are the, you are the master. You are the one who's in control. You are the king of the resources. You own the cattle on a thousand hills. You own it all. God, you are the king of love and interpersonal relationships. You are the king of the world. You are our king and Lord today. And even sometimes when we look around, it doesn't seem to be evidence of that or maybe evidence to the contrary. We reaffirm this morning our allegiance, our choice is you. You are our God and king. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.